with that, I want to just let you guys know that we are jumping back into the book of Romans today. And we're going to pick up right where I left off last time, which is Romans chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 29 through 31. Um, These are complex verses. They are verses that have caused much division in the church throughout its history, specifically since the Reformation. Uh, And I'm hoping that we can approach this without trying to take out any particular tribes. Is tribe even an appropriate word today? Groups, uh, theological affiliations. Uh, What I'm interested in, and I think that this is something that my Catholic brothers and sisters do well, is they allow space for mystery. And I think the moment you remove mystery and try to um, fit God into some sort of rational construct, uh, A, you are diminishing God's ability to be God, which means that there is aspects of God that is beyond human comprehension. And there are tensions, there are paradoxes throughout the scriptures. It actually, I'm, I'm with G.K. Chesterton, it was the insane paradoxes of Christianity that actually caused me to put my faith in Jesus. It was that there are in all of these what seem like apparent contradictions, in order to live you have to die. Uh, that Jesus says, if you want to be first, you've got to be last. I mean, again and again, no place is there an apparent contradiction like there is in Scripture between God's sovereignty, His power, and His ability to fulfill His purposes and His plans through human history, and at the same time maintain um, human responsibility. And theological grids have been created to support one or the other side without allowing for both to coexist. And it's actually in the tension of the coexistence that I think we find the divine mystery and the thing that actually inspires devotion to Jesus. So my hope today is not to get lost in theological weeds, but to remind us again and again that everything that God declares about himself in Scripture is directly connected to his concern for you. And the moment you try to apply abstract ideas to God, what is God like apart from the fact that the only thing he reveals about himself corresponds to the center of his creation, which is humanity, is the moment you begin to do damage to God and remove the, the love and the, the pathos that God actually experiences himself and we being his image bearers um, also experience. So we're not interested in entering into the cold. I, I don't want to fall into trappings. I was just giving a preaching conversation with, with, uh, with those that teach on staff and I said, here's one of my number one rules. I learned this early on. If people say your sermon's interesting, you have failed. Because that means it didn't move me and I didn't understand it. <laughs> and I'm not sure you did either. <laughs> so, and I remember this happening when I did a series on the attributes of God, and it was my wife who said, she goes, honey, I just, I do not like this series. And I'm like, I was devastated. It was like year two of Door of Hope, and, and I go, why? And she goes, it just, it's all here, and it's ne- it never touches here. And I'm like, well, I think maybe it's because your heart's hardened and <laughs> you've lost your ability to see the value in how God has gifted me. 
No, she was absolutely right. It, actually, what happened is I was meeting with Gary Brashears, who was giving me a whole series of new theologians to expand what I had already read, who were arguing with people that I had grasped a hold of and said, this is the way. And then all of a sudden, I'm like, I don't know what the way is. I guess I'll just try to figure it out in front of everyone, which is a really bad idea. That's called, it's what Spurgeon called fireworks in the fog. Um, and so uh, you're like, I see some light. Not sure what it is, though. Okay, so let's, let's begin. And, and I just want to remind you um, that in verse 28, it starts this text. It says, and we know that all things, in all things, this is the last passage I, I covered in, in Romans. We know in all things that God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. And we considered in great detail that, that he doesn't make everything good in our lives. What God does is he has this unbelievable power and ability because of his deep concern for you to take the most dissonant notes of our existence and to weave them into his redemptive purposes. It's a beautiful aspect of God's power to override the horrible songs that sometimes our lives are writing and to make them beautiful again to take the ugliest parts of our histories and to weave them into his redemptive purposes is one of the most beautiful aspects of the Christian faith. And this is why we want God to be sovereign. Because if God was not able to take the most broken parts of our lives and weave them into his redemptive purposes, how despairing would you be? I know for me, I just got back from, I just celebrated my 24 year anniversary on, on um, Monday with my beautiful wife, Darcy. But before we went on our anniversary, we spent uh, four days in Chicago, and we did three of those days in Chicago. Um, we're spent doing 16 hours of intensive marriage counseling. And we did this about four years ago. We actually, we really love each other, and we actually think it's a healthy thing because ministry puts so much pressure um, and before I entered into ministry, I was one of those Christians like counseling is bad. Um, you know, if you found Jesus, you forget what lies behind and you press toward the goal. I realized at this point that Jesus doesn't erase your past. And if you're like me, who grew up in a home that was never safe, where there is abandonment, where there was not very kind stepfathers, where there was sets of stepbrothers and sisters that came and went, where there was continual bullying, where there was sexual abuse, where there was continual isolation um, and a lack of parental oversight, which is my entire childhood. That doesn't just like disappear. And I realized at 48 years old that there was a bunch of stuff that I had never dealt with. And and I'm not one who cries easily, and I just like self-deprecating humor. I just make jokes about it, and then I like to say, I talk with people who have way worse past than me. Um, but that's not actually very helpful, because God wants to take the brokenness of our past. This is a huge part of his calling, actually, upon our lives, is he takes our lives, and as we, by his spirit, are willing to enter into our histories, he can actually bring healing to those areas so that he can actually then use them to bring healing to other people. Our wounds will always leave scars, 
But the beautiful thing of scars is scars become the very testimony to the possibility of healing. A scar reminds you that you have been healed of something that once afflicted you. And I think that this is a, a beautiful thing that God uses all things to work together for the good of those whom, who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. Now, here's the thing, called according to his purpose. Now, look with me at Romans verse, chapter 8, verse 29, because here we move into the depth and the mystery of this passage, which should never be taken out of context, but should be placed firmly in one of the most powerful and encouraging chapters in the Bible, which is Romans chapter 8, which is consistently speaking of the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives and the Spirit's assurance that it brings to the believer's life as we surrender to Jesus, God's Spirit and God's love is poured out into our hearts. That is, we actually can know practically and tangibly that we are loved and now are given the capacity to love. It's a beautiful thing. So we have to be careful because if you just look at this verse by itself, you don't see that pathos. You don't see that beauty and that love, but it's actually all about that. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. The, that he, that is Jesus, uh, we being made in the image of, we being made in now in the image of his son. There's a whole new creation, we are told, um, through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. He is the firstborn over a new creation. He is the new Adam. He is the one for the many in the many in the one. Now, here's the challenge of a passage like this, is that we see this as a decision in God, and this is where the theological wars begin. It's this idea, there are some that hold to the idea that God, I, I would say there's kind of three like hard positions, but the fact is, is that the two polar sides often argue there is no middle ground, which is absolutely foolish, and church history does not actually support that on any level which is on one side, you have God through Jesus died for some, not for everyone. He only died for the elect. And so that is that God died for the chosen. And those who are chosen is a very small amount of the human population. And the vast majority of humanity was created to be in a uh, demonstration of God's glory through his holiness and his wrath. And as an evangelist, I find that deeply troubling because if I actually believed that, it would be a very disingenuous thing for me to preach the gospel to all of you as if you were possible candidates, knowing that most of you were not chosen. And those that hold this view go, well, no, 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 the reason we preach to all is because we don't know who the chosen are. It does not matter. The fact is, is that they fundamentally believe that most are not chosen. And what this does to the gospel and to the continual invitations that you see throughout Scripture is it diminishes the, the breadth of God's love. Now, some of you may hold to that position. And listen, I have wonderful friends, 
brothers and sisters that sit in that camp. And I don't even need to name the camp. Uh, because I would say most people that are new believers, honestly, the fact is, is none of you would have come to it if you hadn't been taught it. And not even the founder of that camp, Calvin himself, held to that view, which is limited atonement. It actually came into existence three generations after Calvin lived. In fact, I've read through the Institutes, which it's funny how many Calvinists I meet that actually haven't even read the Institutes. I never found any evidence anywhere in it that Calvin actually defined limited atonement. Universal atonement seems to be held throughout most of church history. Limited atonement is a new doctrine, and my argument, it's way too late to the game. And it does great damage to the very character and nature of God. The other extreme is this view that God is somehow not in control. And that there is absolute free will. And, and that you can reason people toward, uh, toward salvation apart from God's work in their lives. That, that, that the human mind, the human personality being made in the image of God, that image is not totally destroyed, um, and so therefore there is still a longing in the human heart to be connected to its source, and, and because of that, we as conduits of the gospel can preach the gospel to, to rational people and bring the arguments into focus where they then will meet with the living God, and so it's all of the power kind of rests with the, with the person and there, and there, there's even some that go even further and say that God doesn't even know the future, that it's all open. He's as surprised by things as you and I are, um, which that's terrifying to me. Um, like, I don't know. I don't like, a, a blind, I, kind of, I kind of need God to be omniscient, honestly, friends. Um, it's pretty important to me that, 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 you know, when I made a different kind of coffee today that Jesus wasn't like, I had no idea that you weren't going to have the Starbucks espresso roast today. You really have fallen into the trappings of Portland snobbery. It just totally shocked me. thought more of you than that. No, I don't believe God works that way. And yes, I just confess that I drink Starbucks in spite of Portland's coffee. I don't even like it. I just drink it because I'm not going to drink the other stuff that we serve here. <laughs> I don't want my coffee to be fruity. That's weird. <laughs> if I want that with fruit juice. <laughs> but I, I think that this is, this is those, those problems is that this dilemma between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, and people pick teams, but both are fully declared in Scripture. And there is a way to bring harmony without having full understanding. There's a tension at play, and it's the tension that is beautiful. Uh, I think that this is the, the important thing. Look at, look at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. It says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and his will. Now, here is the things when we talk about words like foreknew, and we talk about words before the foundation of the world, we immediately as people who live confined by time as these are decisions made at a point in time. 
But let me just be very clear when it says that we were chosen in him before the foundation of the world or Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. Was Jesus crucified before the world was created? No, he was actually crucified 2,000 years ago. Is it that time doesn't exist for God? He sits in the eternal now. I would argue that that is actually more of an Eastern thought than it is a biblical thought. I don't think that God is confined by time, but I do believe he honors it because he created it. But here is the thing that is important, is that before the foundation of the world, what is there? Before the foundation of the universe, is it a time statement? No, it's a God statement. What it means is that this is a decision that was made in God. And the decision that was made in God was to bring redemption to a lost humanity through his son. The decision is that Jesus is the elect one, the chosen one, and that those who are found in him are chosen. Now here is the powerful thing of that reality is that what it's speaking to is that atonement is actually accomplished for all, but that does not mean that all will say yes to the yes that God has declared over their lives in Jesus. And here we have to hold the tension. It's not about you being able to come intellectually to your own decision for Jesus because we are told that those who are who are lost, who are not saved, who have not been regenerated, are dead in their sins and trespasses, which means that if you are dead, you aren't really capable of much of anything, are you? When Lazarus was raised from the dead, what was the proclamation that was declared? Lazarus, arise and come out of there. He could not walk out of the cave until first he was raised from the dead. There was a divine action before a human action. And this means that we have to understand that every move we make toward God, God is always previous. The previousness of God is essential to a right understanding of the gospel. And there is mystery in that. But that doesn't mean that there is no decision on our part. That doesn't negate, and, and this is where I get frustrated with my brothers and sisters who go too far to this one side where they would argue that even to say yes to God's invitation is somehow meritorious. There is no merit in saying yes to a gift because the moment you open a gift, you have said yes to it. And if a gift is under the Christmas tree and it's put in front of you, Unless you're an infant, it's not going to be open for you. Maybe it will be by your other siblings, but it won't be open. There still needs to be, you have to, it's been purchased. It's been given. It is freely given. It can't be a gift unless it's free, but it also must be received. And I think that this is the beauty. He, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. These words, foreknew and predestined, is that there was a decision in God before the creation story even began that God knew that human sin, that sin was going to enter into the universe. Uh, there is actually the spiritual sin uh, because we don't know where the serpent is from in Genesis at least. He just is there. So there's a problem already in the garden. 
And our first parents respond to that problem by deciding to, dis- to define for themselves right and wrong. And sin entered into the creation story. We're told that all of creation groans awaiting its redemption. But here we are told that before all of that even happened, God as the grand narrator, the grand storyteller, already has figured out how to weave all of that ugliness, all of that dissonance into his redemptive purposes. And if we say, well, how can God allow human suffering? How can God allow all of these things that we experience in our lives, the brokenness that I experience, the abuse that I experience, the abandonment of my father, how can he allow those? I don't need to answer that because I believe that whatever God, whatever game God is playing, he has played fair and taken his own medicine. Dorothy Sayers could never have said it better. The fact is, is that Jesus entered into the human predicament so fully that we can't say that God doesn't understand. In fact, we can say that God has eternally understood. And this my friends, is why this is such a beautiful doctrine. We don't have to be afraid of predestination. This isn't about determinism. Those are human words that in human logic being applied to God, who is the creator of all. And if we would say that God has determined that most be damned and a few be saved, we cannot in good conscience say that God is actually being generous in his offer to the world. We can't actually take a passage like this. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, Jesus speaking, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. It doesn't say, and everyone he picked, regardless of what they believe, has life in him. That's not what it says. It says everyone who believes in him shall not, or it says everyone who believes in him shall have eternal life in him. For God so loved, it doesn't say the elect. It says for God so loved the cosmos, the world. But we know that he's specifically speaking of people because what does it go on to say? That he gave his one and only son that whoever believes So that's a someone involved. In him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed. How could God condemn someone that never had the ability to believe to begin with? That's exactly the problem you have if he only chose some. If he never chose you, then it doesn't matter what you believe, you're damned if that doctrine is true. And that is why Wesley said of those that held so furiously and and intensely to that, he said, your God is my devil. And I love in Wesley's arguments against, uh, against a really strict, hyper kind of limited atonement reading of of Romans 9, he said, whatever Romans 9 means, it can't mean that. (laughs) And I like that. It's a good argument by deduction. But I think that this is the problem, is that you you can't not believe in something that you were already programmed not to believe. That's a problem. That does damage to the very heart of God. There has to be a 
ability to reject something that God is revealing. And as Jesus is lifted up, he says, if I be lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. And as the Holy Spirit, I have seen people do this, where the Spirit is illuminating the truth of the gospel, but they can't seem to cross over the threshold. They can't say yes to God's yes. I saw my father do this, and praise God that God was relentless in his pursuit of him. But my dad articulated the gospel to me clearly, which was so shocking. And I said, Dad, what is keeping you from coming to Jesus? And he looked at me and he got teary. And he said, here's a man sitting alone in a chair. He can't walk in a cabin in Alaska. And, and he's, his body is destroyed by just a lifelong abuse, alcohol and, and drugs. And he just told me the other day, I talked to him the other day and he's like, He's like, I actually up my cigarette intake. I'm up to three packs a day. I'm like, I'm like, how? I feel like I'm going to live forever if I even just take care of myself like a quarter better. <laughs> he has nine lives, really. Does. And he has come to faith. It's a beautiful thing. Um, but he's, at this point, he said to me, he goes, I cannot surrender. He knew exactly what he was rejecting. And the unwillingness to give up what he viewed as control, which he had no control of anything. But the power of the human ego and the will is powerful even when the spirit illuminates the truth. Look at how the scribes and Pharisees responded to Jesus. That's why he referred to their direct rejection of him and attributing his miracles to Satan, he said was blasphemy against the Holy Spirit and the one thing that can't be forgiven. Of course that's the one thing that can't be forgiven. It's the the re absolute rejection of the truth of who Jesus is as revealed by the Spirit. And so it is that we see here that Jesus brings forth an invitation that shows us that those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, that this must be held in harmony and intention with the fact that the gospel is to be given to all people, that Jesus' life and death and resurrection was for all people, but not all people will respond. And this is why when we see calling in terms of verse 28, it's much like Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet of the nations. That the call actually was what distinguished the prophets from the false prophets. It was a call to something. It was a call to be a conduit of God's grace to a lost world. So, let me just share another passage with you that I think brings balance to this text. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Notice this. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. God making his appeal through us. This, page, this passage makes it clear that God is offering salvation to all people through the church 
on the grounds of atonement of Christ, and if he himself has limited that substitution to only the elect, how can he make such an offer genuinely to all people? Can't. So the offer goes forth to all, but the reminder that every move you make, he was always previous. And if that makes your head hurt, whatever, it's fine. It makes everybody's head hurt. That's why people are arguing over 2,000 years. This is the point. All of this speaks to one fundamental factor, regardless of where you sit theologically. Because if you, because the only people that hold to, hold to, the, to limited atonement are those that think they're part of that special election. So listen, friend, if that's you, then you, this, is, this is true for you, or it's true for those of you that actually never thought about it and don't, wanna, don't really care to think about it again. Here's the fact, God's, power in his movement in our lives and in his world is for this reason and this reason alone because he cares because he cares about you because he loves you God's omniscience his ability to know all things past present and future his sovereignty his ability to make decisions that weave broken humanity and broken world into his redemptive purposes to even take the evil that, that, that has been worked in the world and to bring beauty out of it, all of that is because he is a God who in the essence of his being is love and it is love in a way that we cannot even begin to get our heads fully around. Even for us who have had the love of God poured out into our hearts, there is a mystery in this kind of love because there is no contingency in it. It moves toward us. God's love is elective because he chooses to love sinners in their sin. And that, my friends, is the most mysterious thing. And that leaves room for all theological grids. I just think it's important for you guys to know where I stand. I fundamentally cannot agree with my Arminian brothers or my Calvinist brothers. And I don't think you have to pick sides. They aren't the only two options. And I don't like the term that my dear friend Gary Brashears uses when he calls himself a Calminian. That is not helpful either. Well, let's just go with Christian, okay? I love Jesus. And then if someone says, you know, well, you haven't done enough reading. Okay, fine, you win. I'm an amateur. But I love Jesus. And I know that works. And so it is that there is a mystery involved that we have to hold in tension. And I think this is why we need to understand that this passage is powerful because when we say yes to his yes, what we find is that God's spirit moves into our lives in power and that we're not functioning in isolation. It's not like you just say yes to Jesus and then you're left to your own devices. What this passage is telling us, the whole chapter in its context, is that God actually gives us the tools necessary to navigate the insanity of the world. It doesn't mean it's going to be without problems, but it's going to, it tells us that God understands our predicament and he cares about us and he is with us and we don't need to be afraid. That's the point. Look what he goes on to say in, in verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Once again, this has been called um, by some as like the golden chain. Uh, as if like these are immovable realities. 
Um, but the fact is, it's not, it's not exhaustive. It says nothing about regeneration. It says nothing about sanctification. It, it's, Paul is tying together this reality that, that, there, that God is, has made a decision to bring redemption to humanity in Jesus, that he is bringing forth an invitation uh, for us to participate in glory, and that his hand is all over it. This is what he's trying to say to us. But let's just be clear. Matthew 22, 14 says this. Many are called, but what? Few are chosen. Here, if you were just to read this verse, it says that you basically believe that anyone that's called then becomes justified, and anyone that's justified then becomes glorified. And the, the fact is, is that this is why we have to hold tension. We have to put it in its proper context. And what we have here is that God's call in election, there is, it is conditional to response when we put all of the other passages into play. There has to be a response. Now, I'm not saying that this is, this is a work of the human will. I'm saying that this is a response to the divine illumination. God brings life into our dead bodies just enough to say yes or no to his yes. I like to say that it's like a resuscitation, and then it's like, if you want to come into life, you got to say yes. I'm the one that's already holding you. What are you going to say to that? Um, and I think that this is a, a power um, that it shows that, that God's calling then upon our lives is less to do with, uh, with our occupation. People often say, what is God's call for my life? I think that's an unfortunate language, honestly, because calling is always used to describe God's redemptive purposes in, in human existence. He calls us to be one with him. He calls us into intimacy with him, but that calling is also then particip participation, but it has to do with the outflow of being right with God because of what God has already done for you in Jesus. This is why Luther said, whatever needs to be done has already been done in Christ. Everything that needs to be done has been done in Jesus. Again and again, the call of Scripture, and I think that this is the important thing, justification, calling, glorification. This isn't about you working toward some sort of spiritual arrival on this side of eternity. This has to do with, in spite of the fact that your life will always be marked by mixture, in spite of the fact that some days you'll wake up feeling like Jesus is the most important thing to you in the world, and by the time you go to bed, you feel like a practical atheist. In spite of those things, God has not lost his grip. That's what it's telling us. This is the beauty of the gospel. And it's the thing that inspires us to continue to surrender to him. This is not about the eradication or, or I, I, it's a phrase I don't really like, the mortification of sins. The fact is, is that we sin less as we surrender more. But, the, but here's the, don't be fooled by that. Because you may sin less in one area, and as you surrender more, he just illuminates that there's a whole bunch of areas that you haven't, that you're still fundamentally broken in. This is why I was arguing last night is that do you think the Sermon on the Mount is meant to be lived out practically right now? And I would say yes and no. I'm not a murderer, but I murdered three people on the way here today in my head. 
In other words, when Jesus said, whoever is angry with his brother has committed, has committed murder. Angry with his brother. King James didn't like that, and they added a phrase, whoever is angry with his brother without cause, to leave space. When I stopped reading the New King James translation and got the other one, I thought it was a problem. I'm like, whoa, 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 that's way too easy. That's, lo that's way too loose. I mean, we all have, I mean, how much righteous indignation was proclaimed last year in the church when in actuality, most of us were functioning like a scene out of Clockwork Orange in our heads. We were like, we were full on ultraviolence. You're wearing the little white costume and the fake eyelashes and everything. That's what I was in my head. I was beating everybody with a cane last year. And, and I was a constant murderer. That's the point. Jesus is saying, here, you don't commit murder? Great. How about this for, try this on for size. If you're angry, you're a murderer. Oh, you don't commit adultery? You looked at a woman lustfully. You're an adulterer. What is he saying? You're all a bunch of murderers. You're all a bunch of adulterers. And that's why I came. That's why I came. And I think that this beauty that is found here is that our calling and our justification and our glorification has to do with Jesus, who is the justifier, who is the glorious one, who is the one who was called to be the redeemer of the world. And we are called to abide in him. And it is through abiding in him in spite of our mixture, in spite of, as the very title of my book, as we stumble toward eternity, and it is a lot of stumbling, isn't it? That's why I find it disingenuous to think that church is a place where you stop stumbling. Or that, you know, if we do the enough foundations classes, you'll stop stumbling. What is our sanctification process? And I believe that the answer, friends, is that when I read these passages, when I go to this last passage, a call to confidence in Romans 8.31, this final slide, this is where we will end. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now put all of this in context. If Jesus has us and no one can snatch us out of, our, out of his hand, and he said, and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand, he kind of just puts the double the double hold, and actually it's Trinitarian faith in Romans 8, he says, and the Holy Spirit is given to us as an assurance. All of these things, these binding realities that give us the confidence to face the absolute impossibility of life. Because life is freaking impossible. And I'm tired of pretending like life isn't hard. I'm tired of watching Christians go around trying to pretend like life isn't hard. I don't like it when people say to me, I'm blessed, brother. Just call me Josh and just say you had a crappy day. It's okay. Why, I'm like, why, are we so, why do we struggle so much with being honest about how freaking broken we are? And we want deliverance and we want power and we want the Holy Spirit but we think the way to attain that is by pretending to be some kind of like weird Stepford wives. Like there's like, like we're all like little like robots. Like, you know, I'm blessed brother, I'm blessed brother, I'm blessed sister, hashtag blessed. Um, like th that's not what it means to be a Christian. We should be the rawest people in the world. We should be the people that are, say, I know 
because I am so surrendered to Jesus that I actually see that the closer I get to him, the worse I see myself, the more broken and messed up I see myself. That I'm, I'm comfortable to, to, I'm okay with that because I know that Jesus has me in his hands and that he is moving me toward glory. And I don't have to be afraid because guilt and shame has been removed. And it doesn't mean that I get to live however I want, but it does mean that even when I make mistakes, he still loves me. And when I believe that I, as a guy who makes constant mistakes, who there are certain things in my personality that I can't seem to get over. There are certain glitches and broken things in my heart and in my mind that I can't fix. And that is hard. Some of you have, some of you in this room are, have, have mental illness. Some of you have kids who have mental illness. How fair is it to say to them, you know what, you just don't have enough faith. But that's the kind of crap that the church does. And we can't do that anymore. We have to be able to say, Jesus loves you. And I believe that there is any possibility of actual transformation and healing, and there is. I believe in the spirit-filled life. I believe in the sanctification of the believer. But I think that sometimes our idea of what that is is all wrong. Because it's, in our minds, it's a ladder. I'm gonna get to that point that that person is. When in actuality, it's like the higher you get or the more you grow in maturity is actually, it's a fundamentally a lower position of service. It's the upside down kingdom. And what I read in this passage is, is that, listen, there is mystery. All these people are arguing about whether God did the, all of everything and man did anything, or if man did everything and God did some things, and I think all of that is just unnecessary. I gave you a foundation just so you understand why the arguments exist, but the fact is, is what this tells me is that God has things under control no matter how crazy our world is. And the question that we must ask is, am I a part of his redeeming story or am I rejecting his redemption in my life? Have you said yes to his yes? Or, or are you saying, and you can say, well, I said yes a long time ago. I'm asking you, are to, is today a day which you are saying yes to his yes? Because I tell every couple that gets married, marriage is repeating the yes of love every day. The gospel is the same. I can't tell you if you're saved or not. But I can tell you this, if you've given your life to Christ but you're not experiencing him and you have all kinds of doubts about whether or not you're saved, let me just ask some basic questions. Is it because you have stopped surrendering to his saving life? Because you may be saved but you will have no assurance of that salvation if you aren't abiding in him. And this is why we need one another because all of us are different places. Some of us are like right in the middle of the path, more in love with Jesus than we've ever been before. And some of us have just fell off the path. Because if there's one way, there's a thousand ways to fall. And that's why we as the body, we grab the people that are starting to stumble off the path and say, hey, remember, remember who you are. But because we've turned our faith into such an individualistic pursuit, we've lost our ability to see how desperately we need each other and how desperately we need to be honest about our brokenness before one another and remind each other Jesus is going to see things through. 
if the cross isn't that total, then the gospel is less than it is. And if the invitation of God's love isn't for every single one of you, then I have no right as a preacher to say God loves you on your worst day. He loves you. He loves you. Before the foundation of the world, he already loved you. And at the end of the world, before the new heavens and new earth comes, he loves you. It's possible for a person to die unsaved. It is not possible for a person to die unloved. And we need to understand that heaven and hell do hang in the balance. And that Jesus is the savior of the world, but we must say yes to his yes. And for those of us that want to experience the power of the spirit, we must repeat that yes every single day.